Hey, hey, it's Jeff Jarvis at the CUNY Graduate School of Journalism for the next episode of .NYC Ready Demo Launch. So we have something a little bit different this time. Uh, in the past, we've kind of had the uh, the poor man's, uh, poor woman's shark tank. Uh, it's nicer because we have no money to give away. Uh, where we've taken really kind of fledgling uh, companies out there and seen what they have. Today it's different because we, in, in honor of having Mikhail Rosen, who's the general counsel for uh, Kickstarter, uh, she's helped bring together three uh, efforts that started out of Kickstarter and were made possible because Kickstarter exists in New York. And so we're going to talk to those three companies, have them present what they do, and then have some back and forth about the companies and life in New York and such. And then that'll be that. Uh, also with us is Sumit Shah, who is the uh, principal at Brand Foundry Ventures, Correct. a three-year-old uh, venture fund here in New York, raising your next fund now, you said? Correct. We're working on our second fund right now, but we're an early-stage, seed-stage-focused fund on low-tech to high-tech consumer products and devices. So all three of these companies definitely right up our alley. That's great. Uh, so, Mikhail, Sumit, thank you very much. So now I'd like to welcome Alexandra Fine uh, from Dame Products, uh, who has uh, two products, one that was launched on Kickstarter, and over to you. Alexander. Yeah, so hi, I'm Alex, as previously mentioned, one of the co-founders at Dame Products. Um, for a really long time, I wanted to be a sex therapist. And my other co-founder, Janet Lieberman, she's an MIT-trained engineer. And with our powers combined, we like to think we're making the world a happier place, one vagina at a time. So <laughs> um, we kind of noticed something in the world called the pleasure gap. Good, okay. Um, and um, pretty much which states that men are, women are four times more likely to state that sex has been not at all pleasurable in the past year. That's not, oh, it's okay, not at all pleasurable. And that was in 2010, that was that study, so it's a little old, but it's still really prevalent. There's also something called the orgasm gap, which I think in and of itself is male-centric, because it really focuses on orgasm as like the end-all, be-all of sex. But so, um, but men are like twice as likely to have an orgasm during sex. And we think that we can help change that. Um, so 70% of women need control simulation in order to have an orgasm. And that's something that not a lot of women get during penetrative sex. So we've kind of focused on making two products that are really designed for couples um, to be able to use while they're having intercourse. Of course, they vibrate and you can use them alone. And they have a lot of, a lot of fun times just by yourself too. Um, but our first product, I think that's where we're at, is Eva. So Eva is a hands-free clitoral vibrator that a woman can wear during sex. So it's got these bendable wings that tuck underneath the labia majora. I'm going to make my hands into a vulva. So you can still wear it while you're having sex. So, yeah. Okay, cool. And uh, happy to <laughs> met, um, we launched this one on Indiegogo. We raised $575,000 in 45 days. We're the world's most crowdfunded sex toy of all time. Um, yeah, it was tons of press, and we actually shipped like maybe 1% of them on time. But then everything was about like a month late, which we're like oddly kind of proud of in the crowdfunding world. Um, and then our second product, Finn, we did launch on Kickstarter. This product is a finger vibe, which I don't. So the tether is optional, um, but really it's meant to be worn on your hands. To touch, touching each other is like already the most intimate act we do. So how can we augment that touch, um, making it strong enough, but also have a lot of versatility, being able to quickly incorporate a toy. You know, the second it takes time to put the toy on, you can really lose interest. 
So we spend a lot of time just talking to our consumers about Eva, what they loved, what they didn't, what they wish was different. We actually heard back from a lot of guys that they didn't like that they were not interacting with the toy. They also wanted a toy that they could interact with. So to each his own, of course. Um, so this toy you can wear in lots of different ways. You can reach over it. You can also wear it on the back of your hand, and it will still transmit some of the vibrations. For most women, it's not going to be enough vibration, but it's still a really fun kind of way to play. All these products are medical-grade silicone, rechargeable. We follow consumer electronic standards, um, which is not necessarily the case in this unregulated industry. Um, and yeah, was that two minutes? I think, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> uh, questions? Oh, also shipping. And this one, yeah. on time, I want to say it was like 85% <laughs> of people already. We launched the pressure picture. Yeah. Well, you know what? Um, no, we just, we're just getting better at it. Manufacturing is really, really hard. And I'm really lucky to have um, a co-founder who has eight plus years of experience manufacturing. So she was a lead engineer at MakerBot, mm -hmm. and she really... She's always like, you know, gives me lots of buffer, <laughs> is, doesn't like making promises, and like, it, it's really helpful. It helps us make promises we can keep. So first off, your reputation precedes you. Uh, we One of our largest investments is in Lola, and I know mm -hmm. uh, Jordan and Alex interviewed the both of you uh, mm -hmm. through the broadsheet, so good to actually put a face with a name, yeah. uh, which is really exciting. Uh, walk me through, let's talk a little bit more about that manufacturing process and mm -hmm. how you guys were actually able to perfect that over time. Like, what I'd be very curious about is that we invest a lot in hardware and hardware is extremely hard. And we've had a few of our founders that have had a bit of X factors where they've either speaking, spoken uh, fluent Mandarin or they work directly with some of the supply chains. I'd love to hear about that process over time that led you to now where you've been able to ship things on time, especially with Finn. Yeah, so for starters, um I think everything is always a lot of hard work and a little bit of luck. Mm -hmm. So I definitely like meet founders all the time who put in the, all the hard work and got not great luck when it comes to manufacturing. And that happens too. Um, what we did is we started off by going to um, a medical device conference, which is because those products are actually really similar to the type of quality we want to make. Mm -hmm. We met a lot of um, a ton of contacts there and eventually got put in touch with enough contractors and subcontractors that we can make the product. Um, and then Janet, we also, do, so we do all the product development in-house, which is also very uncommon in our industry. Yeah. Um, we have 3D printers, we 3D print even tools, this way we can actually do silicone injections so we can get the product out there, get it tested, make those small tweaks that you, know, you would do in software or anything else mm -hmm. um, and make better and better product. And then from there, Janet also knows how, is, understands manufacturing, so we design for manufacturing. Um, you can't just, just because you can make it, if you can't figure out how to make tens of thousands of them quickly, then it's like almost, it's not worth making it um, to a certain extent. And then we go to China. Of course. And yeah, so Janet spent over a month in China the first time making sure it was happening. Uh, we have weekly calls with them. Uh, on occasion, if we need to get something translated, we've gotten it translated, but we think you know, images are a really amazing way of communicating. So is math. Mm -hmm. Math and images are <laughs> universal. Um, and you know, it's, it's not like we've never had a trip up or something, but we're just really on top of it, I think. And that has allowed us to make, also these products compared to a lot of consumer electronic 
Internet of Things. Mm -hmm. This doesn't have as many components. Yeah. This is. It's a pretty simple product. It's a re in, you know, we level, always. Yeah. It is like we use high tech to mm -hmm. develop the products, but what we've heard from consumers is like they want something that that like enhances intimacy. Mm -hmm. They don't want to feel like a cyborg interacting with their partner. <laughs> they want to actually like they want to feel like they're naturally holding something or it's just mm -hmm. kind of happening. It doesn't interfere with the parts of sex that they're enjoying. Um, not that they're not even enjoying this. It's, we like to say it's like sprinkles on top. You know, the ice cream's still good. Um, so, yeah, I think that keeping it simple, because that's really what we're hearing from consumers. Mm -hmm. um, also, with Finn, when we were designing this product and we were thinking about all the ways we can augment touch, we were also thinking, like, what are if we want to do X, Y, and Z, does that mean we need to find a different supply chain? And, like, how is that going to impact us? You know, like, right. I, you know, that's a lower concern, making it the best product we can make is a top concern, but it's not not discussed. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, by the way, just on a side note, I'm really glad you went into very, very deep detail about your manufacturing pathway, because I think this is actually something really useful for those who are watching who are working on hardware products or IoT products, because mm -hmm. of the fact that as long as you're working through those iterations, you always are going to get slipped up and tripped up by these various bugs and, and, and setbacks in the system. And again, saying this as an investor who's invested in multiple hardware companies. Um, and I agree with you also for the fact that looking with your customer feedback, especially for a very intimate consumer product because mm -hmm. it's all about experience. And that, especially for a very, very personal experience that needs to happen, it's so powerful to make sure that you're, of course, going back and forth and being cyclical with your customers. So that's really awesome. It's also harder to get the feedback, as you can imagine. <laughs> yeah. It is definitely challenging. Um, yeah. Be, you know, like if you had a, any other hardware product, I'd put you in a room that had a two-way mirror, and I'd watch mm -hmm. ten people interact <laughs> with that one product. There are a lot of those things that, for mm -hmm. obvious reasons, we're not doing. We do get some visual data back, though. We've had people who are willing to drop trowel and uh, you know show us, and that's really, really helpful. Yeah, that's it's really that's helpful. Generosity. Yes, yeah, powerful. On on that note, actually, and just last question for me then is. Uh, how, who have been the more successful target customers, whether it's demographics, um, age, et cetera, that have been really not just been providing the most helpful and critical feedback, but also have just been the most responsive to it? That's a great question. To, for feedback, so like when we're looking at testers or like just in general in our audience and mm -hmm. like on our website, yeah. both? Yeah, in general. Because okay. I'd so be so curious about this. In general, millennials love to talk about us. <laughs> Not buying us as much though, you know, yeah. as much as say the 35 plus or like, which is still, you mm -hmm. know, the lower side, but really um, married women are twice as likely to own a sex toy period. Mm -hmm. And both of our, our toys are couples toys. So mm -hmm. we do really well um, with couples, about 30, 45% of our online mm -hmm. purchases are from men, mm -hmm. which people are always surprised to hear. Mm -hmm. um, but I think there, if you're in a serious relationship for a long time, this idea of like, I need to do it myself all the time, every time, you realize that sometimes it's nice as a guy mm -hmm. to have a friendly helper, you know? It's, we don't always have 20 minutes for, for women's warm up, which is how long a, a, women, mm -hmm. a female arousal period can take. It is nice, you know, like I like the shortcut a little bit sometimes, and I don't know why people freak out when you talk about efficiency in sex, but. <laughs> 
I think when you're older, as you get older, you, <laughs> you that falls away. So I think that's why we do really well there. Yeah. Um, does that answer your question? No, that, def- that definitely yeah. answers the question. And uh, it's always interesting, too, because also I guess it's an interesting call to action where as you figure out uh, if millennials are so excited about your product, it's like, how do you wean them into the system? Whether it's like combining it with a box like an Unbound box, I know you work mm-hmm. with Polly, um, but also just even the opportunity like a referral system of things, right? Whether it's like encouraging them to be like, hey, if you share from this level, we'll give you a little bit of a discount to there. So it's like really, lowering the obstacle to it. We really, we do that actually not just for that reason. Word of mouth is amazing for us, but we also have, um, this was, uh, we also have issues with Facebook. Um, of course. Advertising policies are really challenging for us. Oh. I, I knew you would like that. Hey, guys. So getting, you know, we are the first X-Toy in Kickstarter, and mm-hmm. we were really happy that we got Kickstarter to see this, um, to, to mm-hmm. take, to look at this project and decide. Was that, was that an issue? Mm-hmm. There was, yeah. So, so what, were the, what were the concerns? I, I don't remember if it was exactly this uh, project, but um, our payments providers have have um, oh. rules around the types of products that are allowed right. um, to run projects on Kickstarter. And um, so our rules are sort of formed around those, but um, it became really clear to us uh, seeing the kinds of projects that are coming out in the sort of sexual wellness space, um, that there are really wonderful, innovative things being done yeah. here, and that um, we needed and wanted to make a space for them, um, because this is sort of exactly the type of, of venture that we that we wanted to support. It um, was amazing. I was like, yeah, it was, a, I was so amazed by Kickstarter, because mm-hmm. it's easy to have a policy that just, like, a lot of people have them, a lot of, VCs have sin clauses, and they're just standardly written in there, and they just completely wipe us off the table. It doesn't have, honestly, it's not happening as much as it used to, but it's hard to get an organization to decide to take that off. It's just really easy mm-hmm. to keep yeah. it on. It's like, why bother? And I think Kickstarter saw us as creators, because we are just creators. Mm-hmm. We yeah. happen to make things for vaginas, and which I think is pretty cool. Um, <laughs> and seeing them change the policy, change, wasn't even really a policy, mm-hmm. but seeing them change it, and well, Stripe actually had changed it too, we'd been working with Stripe, mm-hmm. but they still have some weird things. A lot of people also like, what their policies are as a private company are is interesting, seeing that with news and Facebook right now mm-hmm. is interesting, um, and I think people are really starting to Do you manage to, to advertise that. on Facebook? No. Just because the topic is sex, or? So because we sell sex toys, because we've gotten our content other people have. If you called it therapeutic, yeah. would it make a difference? I mean, are there other word games to play? If it was purely educational, and we weren't. If our product was educational, mm-hmm. entirely, uh-huh. which would be very hard to define. Yeah. Like what would? But if it didn't give you pleasure, if the product didn't give you pleasure, like there is a company <laughs> called Oh My God Yes, who are they're amazing. Um, they do. They have a software-based company that shows you masturbation techniques as a woman. Um, or if you're a guy and you want to learn too, it's also a really great place to go there. And they have been able to get Facebook, I think, to reconsider. Oh. So uh, it's again, a content play, I guess. It's yeah. content. Yeah. It's not. It's not a. That was kind of how they got there. Yeah. Um, but, but, but that's that's weird to me because because you'd think that the, buy it and do with it what you will. These are mm-hmm. big organizations. To, I mean, that is, that is yeah. a depiction of sex. It's just we're, we, this country is just. 
But that's the least of our problems now. I, I know, uh, but I yeah. think it's all connected, and I agree. I have a hard time complaining about it right now because it's clearly impacting like the world in a much more. I don't know, an intense way. Um, As a manufacturer, I'm, I'm speaking of politics, I'm going yeah. to ask, just, just what's your uh, retail price for, the, for the, each of these? Great, so this is $74.95 and EVA is $105. That's a great so, price on the average cost of a vibrator, which is like between 75 to 100 in general. And that, yeah, those are products that aren't so even that good at anyway. Pretty much what, what happens in the industry is you have these really, really luxe overly priced like mm -hmm. Janet one of the reasons Janet and I, going back to that luck and hard work Janet and I both were starting sex toy companies and then people thought we were the same person and that's how we met nice. <laughs> like so she can't we both came to it from different places and she was essentially taking apart these really luxe vibrators and being like mm -hmm. interesting mm -hmm. if you had to build that in the US because of uh, duties it actually what would it cost um, the, I would pay the duties you pay the duties I pay the duties the, the expertise just isn't here. Literally, if it was 45% tariff, right? I think that was like what he, one of the highest ones he has mm -hmm. said at some point, we would be paying that. The, we, um, it, it might, it might be different for different products, but it's, I know for Eva, when we got that one costed in, uh, in the US, it was just the silicone outer molds was $30. Is it because there aren't, um, outlets for manufacturing here or because the cost is just so much higher? So manufacturing these products in particular are really strange. Really the people that do have the expertise are in medical where they have a higher value. They, they can get that. Mm -hmm. um, particularly Eva, since it has this overmold, it has no, which is really nice because that means there's like no caveat for dirt um, to get stuck in, no plastic meets, you know, rubber kind of thing. So that uses a different, it's not injection molded plastic, it's, mm -hmm. or rubber, it's um, room temperature vulcanized. Mm -hmm. So it's a little bit more labor intensive. And that's why that particular thing is really only done for like NASA and medical devices in the US mm -hmm. or even the expertise is also in China. That's mm -hmm. the other thing is China's not, it's not, not only getting like products at a price point that allows me to sell it to a consumer at something that they can afford, um, but it also, they're great at making them. It's really hard to make product, you know? Yeah. And who would have thought you want to be a sex therapist and you end up becoming an expert on, you know, vulcanized rubber? And I like yeah. have an art minor and I uh, love it. <laughs> yeah. I, so before I met Janet, I was definitely like, I went to the art supply shop and like, you know, it's amazing what you can do for 20 bucks and like, or $200 probably more like that in, in an art supply store, all the materials you can get and the things you can learn. And then you have to have a lot of really good friends who are willing to come over and try your vibrator, handmade vibrator out, um, which I did. And sales, how are sales going? Sales are going really well. We um, are in a bunch of chains now. We also sell direct to consumer online. What's the better channel? Uh, it's a great question. Um, we're actually trying to figure out which one. Okay. That's gonna really, be my other question as an investor too. Really makes, I think we really believe in the e-commerce play, but we definitely have some e-commerce challenges as. Well, discussed Facebook earlier, example, Facebook, Facebook as an example. Um, so, um, and, and I think, you know, e-commerce is is challenging, but I do, I love having that direct connection yeah. to the consumer. Like, that's amazing to get the feedback right from them, to be able to like really mm -hmm. develop a community where you can like, we want to be telling you about the information we're learning about sexual pleasure while we're developing products for, you know, pleasure. So, mm -hmm. um, that's really where we want to be, but man, those big distributor orders are easy. Mm. Yeah. The margins aren't as good, but like the time that we have to put into it and all of that, mm -hmm. it's just, you know, it's 
the system is there. Of course. Mm -hmm. Are you seeking investment now? Um, always be raising, always. you know. Like, <laughs> raising. We, I actually like, don't love that saying because we're trying to raise. We tr we're trying to be a sustainable company. I don't want to mm -hmm. be in. I don't ever want to be in a place where like, we, we've been cash flow positive at points. Mm -hmm. So we don't want our burn rate to be yeah. like five x the cash coming in. Like that would be crazy to me. I would never get there. But we are, always, you know. It's all about raising the right amount. The right, right amount, yeah. or from the right people, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and at the right, you know, valuation. Alex, thank you very much. This is fascinating. Best of luck, and, uh, and I really appreciate you coming. Thank in. you. Right, thank this you. one was so for you. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, next we have uh, David uh, Wiener from Priority Bicycles, another Kickstarter effort. Uh, go ahead, David, have a seat. And we'll tell us for two minutes about the company. And um, off there. Yeah, okay. We'll back. Good. Thanks for having David, me. Thank you for being here. Really appreciate it. Thanks for coming. How's it going? Yeah, great. Um, from one form of happiness to another, we believe on <laughs> happiness <laughs> on two wheels. Uh, so, uh, thanks. Uh, yeah. Great. So my name is Dave Wiener. I'm the founder and CEO of Priority Bicycles. Uh, I grew up working in the bike industry, literally turning wrenches in the back of bike shops, helping people find the right bike for them, for whatever their uh, their needs were in cycling. And then uh, I went to work for a major bicycle company before deciding to take a little turn with my career and go into software. Over the next 10 years, I was in software, wound up becoming an author on a certain product, building a uh, team within a company, becoming CEO of that company, and uh, at one point we, we sold that company. And I found myself uh, a couple years later figuring out, uh, working for, for a software company and realizing it wasn't fulfilling my passion and trying to figure out what did I want to do. Well, all my friends would come to me here in New York and say, Dave, you used to work with bikes, you ride your bike all the time. I want to buy a bike. What bike should I buy? I say, great, Jeff. Uh, how much do you want to spend, and what do you want? Where are you going to go on your bike? Say, the answer was always the same. It was, I'm going to ride around town. I might commute to work, and of course, I want to spend as little money as possible. I always struggled with the right bike to recommend, and I kept thinking I could do this better based on my software background and based on my history in the bike industry. And then eventually, Jeff would get a bike and. He would ride it with me a couple times, and then the winter would come, and would get out of winter, and I'd say, Jeff, let's go for a bike ride. And I'd always get the same answer. Well, my tires are flat, my bike needs a tune-up. And I started to realize that if you weren't an ex-mechanic, it wasn't easy to own a bike, especially for recreational riding. So I, as I started to get to the point in my software career where I really decided I wanted to do a passion project and move on and do something new, I started to think, I can make a better bike. And so. I designed a bike that was free from routine maintenance. It has an ultralight aluminum frame, puncture-resistant tires, very comfortable and upright. The most noticeable feature is the carbon belt drive. So it has a carbon-reinforced belt drive, so that there's no chain. So God it's, bless. <laughs> so it's grease-free, it doesn't suck up your pants, and, and the gears and braking are all internal to the hub, so that the bike requires no routine maintenance. The bike comes with a pump, there's really nothing to do but put air in the tires, and we provide you with the tools and the pump in the box. So came up with this concept, enlisted some friends to help, and then said, am I really going to do this? Is this going to be successful? And so having those, I'll say doubts and, and questioning, is this a good idea? Do I really leave a career in software to, uh, to, to start making simple bikes? I took to Kickstarter, and in 30 days we raised 550000 
which is a little higher than our goal of 30,000, <laughs> and realized that, hey, maybe uh, people do want low-maintenance bicycles. That was two and a half years ago. So fast forward to today, uh, we have a successful company with five employees, six models. All of our bikes feature low-maintenance, high-quality components. We've been doing a lot of expansion of fleets. So one of the things we found is if you're a hotel that wants to have a bike program, you need really reliable, low-maintenance bikes. Similarly, if you are a bicycle rental company, you need really reliable, low-maintenance bikes. So we're finding that, that rental market, uh, corporate fleets, hotel fleets are a really good area of expansion for us. We're working on a whole bunch of new products right now uh, that range from soft goods to other accessories in the sporting goods business, not just tied to bicycles. And this spring, we're opening up a retail presence downtown in Tribeca. Mm. So that's, uh, I think, my two minutes on us. And, uh, you know, as we're growing, uh, maybe a question that I'd love to, to throw out is, you know, we're really interested in new ways to get marketing. And, to, you know, we feel that one of our biggest challenges right now is that majority of people looking for a bicycle for commuting or recreation probably don't know we exist. Mm -hmm. How you want to start off? Yeah, thank you for coming. Um, I'm a huge fan of your of your project and of, of your product. Um, I actually got one of your bikes for my mom, and she loves it. Right on. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> it's great. It's great, and she rides it recreationally. Um, I don't know that I have. I, I think one of you two are probably more uh, equipped to handle the the marketing question yeah. um, mm -hmm. that Dave posed. But um, I'd love to hear about. Um, about your Kickstarter experience, I know you ran two projects, yeah. one for the original bike and for the cruiser. Um, and um, I saw that you have six models, so yeah. so you 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 so two of those models you did on Kickstarter, yeah. I guess. And I would love to hear about your experience on that, how you found it, how um, how it sort of supplemented the the rest of the business that yeah. you set up. So we we actually have done three Kickstarters. So we've raised oh. seven hundred fifty thousand over the last two years on Kickstarter. Yeah. Awesome! And thank you. And uh, of the six models, all of them except for one were, were on Kickstarter. So yeah. we'll, we'll Kickstarter the first model, and then if we do another version of it, we, right. we, we haven't Kickstarter. We haven't done kick, that, that with Kickstarter. Uh, Kickstarter for us has been a totally incredible experience for a number of reasons. One is it allows us to validate to is this a good idea? Before we go out and spend a whole lot of money on tooling, is this a good idea? Next, it helps us figure out, before we start bringing in containers and containers of hundreds of thousands of dollars of product, how, how many people like blue versus red? Because that's a question I can't answer. I might, you know, recently with our cruiser, I didn't, there was a color I didn't think we should add. And then everyone uh, from the team really wanted it. We added it, it wound up being the, the best selling color. So, you know, it gives us a way before we, we press go on manufacturing mm -hmm. to really figure out what people want. But the best thing is the community. So we tout ourselves a lot as a, as a company that, that is socially funded or crowdfunded, and we're responsible to our customers. So as a company that only sells online, we're only as good as our last review and as we treat, we're only as good as our customers perceive us to be. Mm -hmm. So we need to be excellent. And we pride ourselves in answering our customers, usually within an hour, seven days a week. We have very few problems with the bikes are incredibly reliable, but if there is a problem, we raise our hand and we take care of it. And our Kickstarters give us so much feedback. They give us feedback before the product launches, 
before we hit go on manufacturing, they give us feedback after they get the product so that we can make running changes. And so the community of Kickstarter us is really good to raise money before production, to validate our decisions, and to keep the feedback loop coming. And we will continue to launch new products on Kickstarter when they're incredibly innovative, have risk involved, and when we really want the community to help. So. That's really wonderful. I'm, I'm really glad to hear you say that because um, I think that's that's very much how we view, um, where we view the value of Kickstarter is in creating that community and involving um, backers in the creative process. Mm -hmm. and. Uh, really sort of fostering a connection between creators and backers. It's so cool to be able to use your customers' capital yeah. to build and to be able to do market research with the real customers as part of the process. I mean, that, that to me is the essence of what Kickstarter does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we've also created a lot of relationships through Kickstarter, so we've met so many other founders. We've promoted uh -huh. their products, they've promoted ours. We have discussions on how are you handling this issue as a small business? How are you handling, you know, where are you manufacturing that? And so it also creates a great community amongst uh, product creators. Great. Yeah, um, no, many congrats to you on all the very successful Kickstarter rounds, man. Um, to answer your question about the marketing, I think you're 100% right that the market, especially in terms of affordable bikes, and I would almost say like 500 and below, yeah. has been extremely fragmented. When you look at companies like Soleil, you look at companies like Tokyo Bike, um, and of course when you get Priority and a few others that are coming in, uh, Linus even, and Schwinn, like, that are even run by the major companies themselves, uh, it gets very, very fragmented. And what we've also recognized is that in a lot of those bike shops, they tend to have a kind of like a car salesman space. So they sell one kind of model, mm -hmm. whether it's specialized in its other constitu constituents or Trek in its other constituents. And so the bike shops are always going to have something in an agenda perspective, and it's always frustrating. So when we've looked at a product, when you look at a product like a bicycle, where it's really something that's just a unique connection to someone, I think that especially as you're getting this really great feedback from your Kickstarter backers is to help them and, and, and encourage them to share deeper stories and testimonials of how they're coming through there. So when you're then using things like the social like world of social media and mm -hmm. email marketing channels, you maybe if they can even add photos and add the extra stories to it, they can really showcase uh, why they're actually proud and happy about their bike. It's a model that we like to call the uninfluencer model. So it's kind of almost showing your product in the wild, right? Where you can see how your product's truly showcasing to it, and it's when people are looking for looking at these customers, they can identify much more easily with them. Because influencer marketing can only go so far, right? You've got some fantastic men and women who have either built their own businesses or things around that space, or they're just trying to be as genuine as possible on there. But when you do that uninfluencer space and something that actually Cotopaxi, mm -hmm. uh, the outdoor gear business yeah. that we've that we've backed, has really, really succeeded in, where people will showcase the product that they're wearing, whether it's the jacket or the backpack or the tent, and they'll tag Cotopax and they'll be like, hey, do you mind if we use it for social media accounts yeah. and for the in the wild perspective? So if you're looking at it on the product page, you'll see exactly how it's actually shown in the wild. It's yeah. something that some major brands are actually now understanding because it's something that's, it's the closest way, especially on a direct to consumer level, how you can see and touch the product to the closest level without actually touching the product. Um, 
couple other ways that we know we've been seen very successful is is the uh, I like to call it the bundle sweepstakes option, where it's like win a trip to London. This will be like your flight will go with this. Your hotel will be with this. You'll get uh, a priority bicycle. You'll get all these things. Basically, you bundle it up into a massive. Mm-hmm. Package. Some of our companies have done a few of those. Those are always fun because then, of course, you get a bunch of new email addresses. Uh, but more importantly, all, if you can get that original content, and it's so important about those spaces, especially for when you're going into a place where it's so fragmented, it's getting the beautiful product, getting the reason why people should go from it, and watching these people having a great time. And then the surprise factor is like, oh, guess what? It's also extremely easy to maintain. And people be like, Oh, okay, I need to get that. So when you build that story with the extra surprise factor that will get them over the edge, that's the really biggest opportunity in terms of the right kinds of marketing. So I think that especially knowing of how genuine your Kickstarter backers are, right. you yeah. gotta utilize that. Yeah. And also they're gonna get even more excited because it shows, uh, are we allowed to curse on this show? Hey, what the heck? Yeah, exactly, I mean, they, they, you give a fuck yeah. Um, yeah. on that level. Yeah. I, I agree with you, and uh, and I think that's the thing we need to explore more. Our our backers and our customers love us. I mean, yeah. and they're proud of their products, uh, but we don't surface that in a meaningful way. So if you go to our Facebook and you look at reviews, they're off the charts. Mm-hmm. But no one goes to Facebook and looks at reviews. Of course not. And, and so we have yeah. all this great content that's sitting in this strange yeah. place that we're not harvesting mm-hmm. well, so, and so yeah. Allbirds is another company we've yeah. backed, which makes a Merino Mole sneaker. And what they've actually been doing with their Facebook targeting is they've used a couple of quotes from the press and mm-hmm. from people that like have called it, it's like, this is the lightest sneaker, it feels like, like walking on air kind of thing. And when you get that extra hook, it's like, wait, why, what? The click, and then the yeah. people will just be very curious to exactly understand what this, what this truly means. Um, and so when you're gonna get those really interesting pieces of information, those really good nuggets, that's also in terms of getting just the right kind of hook to it, mm-hmm. where it's almost, it seems a bit of a too good to be true level, but it's because you know it's already genuine, right. you can build off of it. So, so don't you have the Casper mattress problem, right, that people want to try it before they buy it? We do, people do want to try the bikes before they buy them, and we do offer 30 days, no questions asked return policy. We get less than 1% returns, which is great. So I guess my question is, are your fleet purchasers um, customers or marketers? You know, it's a great question. When we started doing fleets, we really thought they would be marketers. We really thought that when we got into X hotel, Mm -hmm. that having 10 bikes out front, guests would ride them and run home and and buy one. one? (laughs) And and it just doesn't seem to convert the way we expected it to. Mm -hmm. I think that guests are, are on holiday and they hop on a bike and you know they're just using it as a tool to get around. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, my, my co-founder uh, Connor, who's our, our marketer, said, "When's the last time you, you, you uh, yeah, what he said the other day? When's the last time you, you landed in Dallas, rented a Chevy Cruze, and went home and bought one?" You know, <laughs> uh, and I, I don't want to compare us to a Chevy Cruze yeah. in any way, but you know, you land in Dallas, you get a Chevy Cruze, and it brings you where you're going. And no offense to the Chevy Cruze. Um, and no offense to our bikes, but you, you're there on holiday, and you know it, you're probably not paying attention to the bike. But do the hotels kind of brag some... about it? You know, what's what's the the dream bed, or what, which which chain does the the special bed? And they uh, sell the Westin, yeah, Western, the Westin right. has so the, they, the, they the heavenly bed. Yeah, it. they brag about it. They say, try this out here. I mean, I, I don't know. Yeah, it, it strikes me you need meetups, you need places. Yeah, people yeah. Can can try it. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. I agree. And 
we did our, our first year, especially with Kickstarter, we did a lot of these great events where we went around the Northeast. We brought a van of bikes and mm -hmm. said, meet us at uh, on the West Side Highway. We did one, for example, meet us on the West Side Highway from three to five and we'll have bikes. We did one in DC where we met at a bar and said, you know, beers are on us, come ride a bike and well, ride the bike and then, and then have the beer and not <laughs> yeah. the beer, then the bike. Uh, and those were great, really, really fun, but expensive and hard to see how they converted. You know, you don't sell, yeah. you know, we're not good at sticking an eye. We don't want to force a sale. We don't, hey, now, now are you going to buy a bike, uh, Sumi? You, you, you know, <laughs> we bought you a beer. Uh, I do think over the next year, most of those people came and bought bikes. It's just mm -hmm. hard to analyze that. And, and they're expensive and they're, they're time consuming. So I know as you're building at your fleets and you're building at your rental divisions, uh, two things actually that come to mind. One that I've learned from a company that was actually brilliant. It was kind of secret, mm -hmm. but it was a very brilliant way to do it as an extra surprise where um, they were working with like a rental company mm -hmm. or they, they had something that they were renting on a product wise and then the people were just like, wow, that was actually pretty cool. And so they went on the web, like about the product, they went on the website to go take a look at it. And I think there was a point, they were, they were playing this around just as a, as a, a simple beta where it's like, how would you hear about us? Mm -hmm. And then there was a drop down menu with a specific area. So it's like Gotham rentals or something like that. Yeah. Clicked on that, surprise, you got 15% off. Yeah. And it was a nice little surprise. And was like, oh, wow okay like looks that's that's a nice little extra like yeah. benefit to that level so it's almost yeah. a referral on that level uh which increased of course the probability of them actually buying the product yeah um the other interesting thing that i also imagine is there is a marketing opportunity doing it with the fleets with the hotels mm -hmm. because if a hotel of another hotel notices the fact it's like wow these bikes are really awesome and we've been thinking about getting something like this we can contact with that level. And also maybe if you're right. talking to like a hotel chain, let's say right. if it's like Kimpton Hotels Group, right? Um, where you've got it set up maybe in one of their spaces in one of the hotels, they'd be like, wow, this is actually really well done into what they built it out. We should do it for our hotel in Montauk right. on that level. Um, and also one thing, FYI, uh, that you actually will be seeing more in terms of that spaces is more um, restaurants are actually looking to integrate things like this. So Tacombi, which is right. based on sure. New York and the mini yeah. chain, uh, Dario, who's the owner, has always said to me, is like, you know, it would make, it was like, we're always, we're building out our stuff in Montauk. It'd be so cool to have bikes for rental out there. So yeah. it's like, you can take your tacos, you can take it to go, you can go on out to the beach and do whatever you want. And I was like, yeah, that actually would be pretty cool. Tacos uh -huh. and a bike. I live down the street from yeah. Combi, so we'll have to, you'll have to connect me. Those are great, yeah, Sounds great like place, plan. great Dave, place. Thank, thank you so much. Everybody. Thanks for having me, and thanks for the advice. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you. And we have one more. Uh, so uh, another Kickstarter uh, success story, Scott Thrift uh, from the present. Scott, welcome. Hello, hello, thank you. Great to be here. Uh, I am an American artist uh, with a peculiar interest in time, how we measure it, how it feels, and if there's a possible way that we can change time. Uh, so I found out about this yesterday and I decided to just make a two minute video. I was told I have two minutes to present, so right. I just made this compact story of how this happened and why, it's, why it matters to me. Um, and so you guys can go ahead and give yeah. that a shot. Yeah. It was seven degrees Fahrenheit the night I arrived in New York City in January 2004. After spending my entire life in tropical climates or slight variations of summer in the only seasons I had ever experienced. After my first cycle of seasons here, I was changed forever. New York City had become my boss, and it challenged me to define my most ambitious ideas. From a mythic, we're all in this together, global point of view, I decided that the most valuable and urgent thing that the world needed 
was a new perspective on time. So I imagined a timepiece with a single hand that completes one revolution a year. I kicked the idea around for the next seven years while I started a production company called Missing Pieces that allowed me to travel the world making videos, which is essentially the art of sculpting time. Life became so full and was moving so fast that my 365-day clock idea became more relevant with each passing year. So I created a prototype in 2011, put it on this thing called Kickstarter, and by the spring of 2014, it was a functioning product owned by over a thousand people in 32 countries. It's a quiet celebration of the subtlety of life's seasons, which I titled The Present. The present was picked up by the Moment Design Store, became a bestseller, and promptly sold out. Last summer, I ran another Kickstarter for the philosophical sequel to the present, another single-handed clock that changes the way you see your day, this time by completing one revolution every 24 hours, which I've titled simply, Today. This is about simplifying time. The present and today are currently in production and begin shipping this spring. All right. Bravo. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so I was trying to think when I first saw the present clock, I'm trying to remember where I recognized it. I was like, oh, MoMA Design Store, that makes so much sense. Um, MoMA's been fantastic in terms of supporting really awesome, successful product startups. So it's great on, to see that happening too. So For congratulations. Sure. Thank you. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I'm a huge fan of this project. As you know, all of Kickstarter is. We have um, the present clock up in the office and yeah. I think most most of our employees uh, are familiar with it and backed it and have it and I think what we love about it is um, it's uh, this combination of a sort of visual um, like visually compelling artistic statement but also your explanation behind it and hmm. the, the thought behind it and the kind of sentiment that's captured in it um, when every time you look at it and when you experience it, it you pause for a moment, right? When um, when Nick, who's our um, uh, one of our design outreach um, uh, leads, reached out to you to participate in this, he he said, "I hope you're enjoying the light blue part of your year." Right. right. So <laughs> it really sort of asks you and, and forces you to step back from from how you you ordinarily look at things and. Um, yeah, I don't have a question, but I just I think it's uh, really the kind of project that we we love to have on Kickstarter and love to see in the world. It's even compatible with our discussion before that the yeah. Kickstarter itself has a, a longer term view of the world. Yeah, mm -hmm. and that, there isn't that rushing notice of a quarter coming up. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. it's true. Yeah. So walk me through the 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 future of the present right now, because obviously you're wearing a pin right now. I'm assuming that's uh, not not live in terms of anything on that level, but just I, the opportunities in terms of wristwatches and things here, I mean, it's just so fantastic in terms of working timepieces on cufflinks and everything, in terms of just bringing the brand itself. Just love right. to hear more about the future of the business. The future of the present, did you say that? <laughs> future, yes, <laughs> literally, so yeah. The future of the present. Too perfect, there's, there's enough tenses in there, oh my God. Yeah, um, <laughs> so short term, I'm building with a partner of mine the uh, best and most reliable supply chain we can, we can make, um, and also, you know, just putting ourselves in a position to where we're not selling out because that sounds really cool for the first, you know, couple times you hear it, like, oh, I'm sorry, we had to turn you down, retailer. It sounds really good. We'd love to partner with you, but we're sold out. That's become a refrain that is really disgusting me at this point. So I'm positioning the company to where that doesn't happen again. 
Um, I would say the uh, midterm goals are to activate a marketing campaign, which is built around the customer experience. Mm. I mean, this is in so many different places around the world, and people have incredibly profound, like, I can't believe I'm reading this testimonial uh, responses to it. And I also uh, am really interested in working in some way of donating, like maybe every 10 that's sold, I donate one to a recovery center or a, a cancer ward or a hospital um, because just people have a profound experience with it. Um, also, yoga studios seems like a, a good fit for it. The point being that the marketing is built around actually putting it into the world. So it was interesting to hear you talk about putting it into the wild. I don't have a lot of faith in Facebook ads and Instagram. I think there's the experience of seeing this clock and living with it is the mm -hmm. most important thing. And so visiting a yoga studio and experiencing it over several weeks, uh, that's, you know, I, I think that puts them in a great position. So, so I totally understand that. But I also think that uh, maybe not Facebook, but definitely Instagram in terms of people who are showcasing their interactivity hmm. with the president itself, I think is also going to be really powerful, right? Because your goal is to have this product as part of our daily lives in mm -hmm. various different levels. And so when you're looking for a more visually stimulating opportunity, like an Instagram, I think it's important as the hook. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be at the absolute reliance on that perspective, but I think it's definitely interesting about figuring out that right marketing model right. that truly showcases why people are coming through it. And I, I, I get you and also in like the opportunity of selling it to the or putting it for the studios themselves and everything. I mean, something we can definitely talk about on offline, uh, knowing a lot of the colleagues in various spaces um, from the high courts to the second houses to the wings of the world mm -hmm. that would be definitely looking at this and like this makes complete sense on that level. Yeah, there's also the element of this just kind of came out of the blue, uh, corporate uh, sales as, as a gift. Uh, a client came to me and just out of the blue mm -hmm. was like, hey, we'd like to buy 2,000 of them. Um, how long would that take? <laughs> and what's, you know, and I was just totally pretended like that happens all the time. Like, oh, yeah, that's, uh, and here we go, and it'll be done then. Yeah. And totally nailed the contract, and it's like, wow, that could mm -hmm. be an amazing, because the context of somebody getting it at their company as a gift for mm -hmm. bringing a lot of sales or whatever it is, is a beautiful context for today specifically. Yeah. Uh, this wasn't a present sales, this was for the today clock, which is a little bit more practical. Mm -hmm. As I, you know, today was inspired by living with the present, but as you live with the present, it is a real work of art. I mean, it's abstract, it's huge, it's yeah. magnificent. This is a little bit more uh, tuned to, um, you know, just a more practical thing. It's, mm. it's, it really does, it does the exact same thing, it's the same philosophy, but it just sort of flips your percep perception of the day. Absolutely. And it actually takes, it only takes about 24 hours to 48 hours for you to be like, whoa, this is, this is a big deal. With the present, it, I think you have to live with it for like a year yeah. for you to really uh, understand the present. I got a couple questions, sure. um, geeky ones. Mm -hmm. uh, first, uh, have you gotten suggestions and pressure to do a mobile app? I travel a lot, and I think I'd be away from it, and it's kind of gives. Oh, I'm, I'm still in blue. Okay, mm -hmm. I know where mm -hmm. I am now. Right. Uh, even if I'm in Tokyo, I get that request a lot, and I've always said that sounds interesting. I just don't want it to be a part of screen world. Right. And living with it, this having this analog experience of it, I, I feel like it. Uh, diminishes the the quality of it even though of course yes I could reach a huge market and get lots of people into it but I don't want it to just be another thing that you press on mm -hmm. I looked into making it sort of take over the iPhone iOS but it's impossible it, it doesn't work yeah, that way you have to if you have to click on an app I'm not interested in it right so mm -hmm. so so yeah so I have that's that's the strength of being an artist right and something yeah. you have your you have your rules and that's that that's yeah. I mean to do I mean if anything if you're 
would even consider building an app on that level, Android would obviously make a lot more sense because then you can truly take over the phone's hmm. operating system. Come to the light, Android. <laughs> very good, very good. Um, this is really geeky, but I'm going to just uh, I'm focused on it. Mm -hmm. How are you accurate enough that on the year <laughs> you end up at the top? Okay, so the movement that's actually inside of this uh, clock, no one in America could make it. Uh, all the companies have, have gone to China. Uh, the only company that was interested in making this 365-day movement is a company in Germany that was founded in 1899. They flipped their lids when they were like, I mean, they've been making 12 hours twice a day clocks for 100 for years. years. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and they were like, oh, we get to design a new thing. Um, so we did that with them. They made a custom piece. It's an incredibly sophisticated computer, essentially, uh, that has its own memory on it. Mm -hmm. And when you plug the two batteries into the back of it, it makes one full spin, and then it knows where we are in time, uh, and it sets itself to the present day. So if we turned it on now, and this was your birthday, it would set itself to, yeah, a little bit past uh, blue, and that's the present. So it's always pointing to the present. And the beautiful thing about that is that it is always pointing to the present wherever you are in the world. It's actually in about 47 countries right now. So that clock, everywhere you look, it's always connected because it's it's Earth time. Wow. Yeah. So oh, it's a very right. powerful. So, yeah, not, it doesn't start with wherever you are. It's, it is it is a universal standard for. It's it's the today on Earth. Yes. Mm -hmm. The present. Cool. That is amazing. How much are you pricing the the present end today for? And then what are the margins that you're currently working at right now? Sure. Um, in a big transition of moving, uh, I predominantly was making it, you know, when I first did the Kickstarter, I was like, I'm going to make it all in Brooklyn. I'm going to make it in a, a two-mile radius. That was my plan. Um, and they wound up costing about $125 to make one piece. So it was an, an incredibly expensive. Mm -hmm. I worked and worked and tried to get it, that margin down. The closest I could get it was $85 a piece. Um, they are 250. Yeah, still impossible. Uh, $250 at the moment. Design store uh, today is going to be released as an exclusive there uh, this spring at $200 because it's a little bit. Just, um, and that's because actually the movements are a little bit. Uh, there's to make that 365 day movement in Germany is about $18. Um, just that. So that kind of crushes any kind of margin. So we've slowly started to look at components from from Asia. I have a, my partner has a great contact there. We have, uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going in there blind. And the stuff that they've been making and sending to us is so much more uh, sophisticated. Um, and it's actually almost the same price. I think in the long term, mm. it'll, it'll make a little bit more sense. But the company that we're working with is making, it's a clock making company. So, yeah, so the, um, mm -hmm. I don't know if that answers your question. No, it does. Um, I mean, the, I was actually saying it wasn't impossible in terms of the $85. That's actually good. Like, you're getting in an average of 50% margin, especially for a very, very intricate yeah. product that you're Yeah, there's 17 right parts to it. It's a $63 is what we've got it at right now. And wow. the uh, today clock is $52. Gotcha. Mm. Yeah. So, so I, with all the talk, these days about moving jobs out of the U.S. and keeping jobs in the U.S. and trying to trying to get the manufacturing here. Mm -hmm. And and I'm, I'm going to violate TV rules. Dave, where's your bike made? Taiwan. Okay, so the the, the, <laughs> the priority bike is made in Taiwan. Uh, so China, Taiwan, Germany, and Germany. It's going to be the prints are made here in Dugal in New York City. Uh, the the uh, movement is made in Germany, and yes, eventually I think eventually. the glass and the steel, mm -hmm. and then hopefully maybe everything will be made in Shenzhen. Yeah. So. It just strikes me that, that, that what's made possible by the investment mm -hmm. of Kickstarter, by the investment of, of investors, is that you can have the high-end talent and creativity and ownership and equity here, mm -hmm. 
but it's made possible because of the low cost manufacturing you can do elsewhere, hoping that it also matches res corporate responsibility. But, mm -hmm. but, but in any case, um, it just seems that, that the New York's technology scene is enabled by this ability, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I, I, it certainly seems that way from, from our perspective. I think the overwhelming majority of, of creators who have to manufacture something do so in Asia. And um, you know we're primarily dealing with with artists, with independent creators, and so um, you know they whether even if if there is the ability to manufacture in the U.S., um, they they just don't have the capacity to to handle the the increased costs. And so um, you know by building a community here, you and uh, sort of building a base of support here, you want to kind of counterbalance that and and. Mm -hmm. Really, I think, as you said, you know, kind of spread spread the community across. Yeah, yeah. We we still have a long way to go in terms of bringing U.S. manufacturing back to a level where we can encourage founders to be manufacturing. Will we ever get there? I think we will, um, especially for the fact that I've been actually working with uh, very lightly and to more moderate level with members over at Puerto Rico, and Puerto Rico actually has a massive infrastructure out there in terms of manufacturing, especially with things like the fashion industry, with the healthcare and the pharma biotech industries. Um, and they're trying to find ways to actually now open it up to the entrepreneurship world and to see like, look, we've got these opportunities here, there are tax incentives to come through. It's technically a US territory, so I guess you could say made in USA. And especially when Puerto Rico needs more help than ever, in terms of funding from just getting out of their exactly. debt, getting out of their debt crisis, there's a lot of opportunity from there, and it's something that we're still exploring as well. So, uh, one of our co one of our colleagues in the investor world uh, at Revolution Ventures, which is Steve Case's fund, mm -hmm. they're heavy investors in Bedrock Brands, which is the parent company of Shinola, Filson, and Stephen Allen, um, and Filson actually is making some of their products down in Puerto Rico right now, and they're now. Uh, exploring potentially having any of the other products to make and manufacture because then you can truly I mean again I'm, I'm not gonna 100% guarantee but I guess you could technically say then your products are made in the USA right mm -hmm. and I mean it's just interesting that component manufacturers in places cannot uh, have not considered building factories in the United States but who knows who knows what will come out of his current administration when it comes to US manufacturing if they can actually find ways to build cost-effective routes to it. But Puerto Rico, for me, is definitely an opportunity that should be looked upon more. But we'll see. Again, it's, for Think, now, it's just, yeah. just changed. I mean, this, this school uh, at CUNY is in the old New York Herald Tribune building, <laughs> which is in the Shimada district. It's in the garment yep. district of yep. New York. And of course, factories were all around us. Oh, absolutely. And they and still are. They still are to an yeah. extent, which is, which is a mind-blowing that you can afford mm -hmm. uh, uh, the space here. Uh, but things change. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I want to thank everyone very, very much. Thank this is all. this is great. Um, yeah. Uh, uh, Sumit, uh, thank you for coming from uh, Brand Foundry Ventures. Thank you, Professor. Uh, no, yeah, I'm still calling you that. Carl Rosen from, from Kickstarter, thank you so much for, for doing both shows today. I really appreciate it and, and, and a great tale of what you've done with Kickstarter and, and its moral responsibility to the earth as a good company. Uh, also, Alex Fine uh, from uh, Dame Products, Dave uh, Wiener from Priority Bikes, and you, Scott Thrift, from the present. Thanks. Uh, we now go into the future. We hope. We hope. So one more, one more pitch here. So this, this is the end of our city grant to get this figured out. We think we've done a pretty good job. We think we figured out the show. Well, there was some bad ones in the beginning. That's my fault entirely. But we think now we have something going. But we don't have the funding to continue. 
and we need to get that funding. So what we care about here is the New York technology startup scene. We think there's a lot to brag about. We think there's a lot to talk about. We think there's a lot of connections to make. We as a journalism school think we can be in the center of that. We think we can bring students into this process to do stories about these companies as well. Uh, we have a great team uh, running this show across. So we want to do more of them. So if you know anybody in the technology scene in New York who says, yes, let's, let's contribute to try to get this story out there, uh, we're ready. We're ready to start building audience around that. And that's the end of my pitch. So that's it uh, for right now from NYC, and I hope we'll see you soon. Thanks.